We want to begin this lesson today by uh, discussing, as I said, what is often a uh, controversial and yet a curious question about whether or not a demon can possess a Christian. Merrill Unger, who is a uh, renowned theologian, he's in heaven now, uh, graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, pretty conservative, made the statement in one of his commentaries that to demon possession only unbelievers are exposed. A few years later, he came back and he amended that to say that Christians can be possessed in extreme circumstances. The reason he said that is because missionaries started to write him telling him that they had experienced demonic possession on the mission field. Well, I'm in no position to argue with missionaries. I'm not an authority on demonic possession. But I want to share with you today why I believe that a Christian cannot be possessed. Now, I do believe that there are people who think they're Christians. I believe there are people who act like Christians, look like Christians, who may not be Christians. Remember that Jesus says in Matthew 7 that in the great final judgment, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name did we not cast out demons? In your name did we not do many wonderful works? It's interesting that Jesus never takes issue by saying, you didn't do any of that. He implies they had done those things. He says, I will simply say to them, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Now, how could someone be so deceived as to think that they had done miracles in the name of Jesus, cast out demons in the name of Jesus, done many wonderful works, and yet not be a Christian? Well, it's because there's a great, vast chasm between religion and redemption. Those two are very different. And the devil, if he can, will inoculate us to the gospel, as Billy Graham used to say, so we can't ever catch the real thing. We get a vaccine. (laughs) We get an inoculation. But we don't ever have the real thing. And I sadly believe that that is the case for many people. So before I start altering my theology based upon people's experience, I have to wait a while. Because we cannot build our theology based on what we think we've seen. There are many, many people, I grew up in the Free Will Baptist Church, who believe that they've seen people who were truly saved lose their salvation and then supposedly die and go to hell. Is that possible? Well, I believe biblically it's not, but there are reasons why I believe that. It has nothing to do with my thinking that you can do anything you want to do and still call yourself a Christian. In fact, the entire book of 1 John is a faith test book. I've taught through the book. I've preached through the book. John offers many faith tests to see if a person's salvation is legit. Now, why would faith tests be necessary if it's always black and white and it's easy to know? Because it isn't always black and white or easy to know. It's black and white as far as truth goes. But it's not black and white as far as knowing where people are spiritually. And this is something that we have to hammer out in our own lives. That's why in a few weeks I want to preach a a message on 
the, the, the massive faith test where Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourselves, test yourselves, see if you are in the faith, make sure you don't fail the test, Paul says. Well, what are the tests? Well, in that sermon, I'll list six or seven questions that you can use as diagnostic questions to find out whether or not you, someone you know or love, is saved. Not playing God. We're not trying to judge people. We're just trying to know. Are they really a Christian or are they not? Am I really Christian or am I not? So I want to lay before you today at least the beginning of this lesson and let's talk about some of the reasons why I personally believe that a Christian cannot be possessed. Now, I did not say oppressed. We will see in the next lesson that Paul warns us, do not give place to the devil. We cannot afford to be ignorant of his devices or he'll get an advantage over us. I'm not suggesting that Christians can't be harassed, manipulated, deceived by the devil and the demons. Because I believe they can be. But there's a difference between being oppressed and possessed. And so that's what I want to lay out for you. First of all, the principle that Jesus taught that kingdoms cannot work in contrast to themselves. You remember when Jesus was accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan? And Jesus said, now what sense does that make? If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Now, this is not directly what Jesus is talking about, but I think you kind of get the gist of what I'm trying to say. How is it possible that a person who's born again, regenerated, adopted into the family of God, a new creation in Christ, could be possessed by a demon? When as we're going to see, they are possessed by the Holy Spirit of God. See, I I just find that kingdoms in uh, uh, collusion here, uh, um, uh, collision, excuse me, not collusion, collision. And it, it, it just, it doesn't quite fit. Just like casting out demons by the power of Satan doesn't really make a lot of sense either. So the kingdom in in conflict principle is something we need to keep in mind. Now let's get to the meat of it. Believers are delivered from the power of Satan. This is exactly what the Bible says in Acts 26, 18. The Bible says Jesus was sent to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Now, if you are delivered from the power of Satan, how could you then be overpowered by Satan? If you've been delivered by the power of Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting not tempted, not oppressed. We know all of that happens, and we'll get to that. We're talking about demonic possession. 2 Timothy 2.26, And that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. This is speaking of the lost who when they come to Christ are brought to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Who at one time had been taken captive by him to do his will. At one time. But now they're in Christ. So it's just like in 1 Corinthians 6, speaking to homosexuals, liars, adulterers, thieves, and he says, such were some of you. But now you're washed. You're not that anymore. Meaning that if a person is truly saved, they're going to stop living like a devil. Doesn't mean they won't sin. But they're going to stop living like a devil. You cannot, John says, and if you go read the the book of 1 John, it's a fairly short book. John says you cannot claim to be walking in the light of God if you're walking in darkness at the same time. You cannot do that. That is impossible. 
You say, but Dan, what about those people that come and they seem to be real and then they leave? Well, John answers that question in chapter 2. He says, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have no doubt stayed with us. They went out from us to prove they weren't of us. Now, the us there, he doesn't mean the local church. He's talking about the body of Christ. They were not of us. It's very, very easy to get into religion without getting into redemption. And then another verse that's a little more obscure where Paul is telling Timothy that false teachers will deceive the gullible. In this particular instance, he says, For this sort are those who creep into households, make captives of gullible women, you could say gullible men, just as easily, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. And he goes on to talk about it. So this whole idea that people can be led away and taken captive if they're not truly saved is a biblical principle. So they could be a church member, baptized, active in the church, be in the deacons, be an elder of the church, and be just as lost as a goose. Probably some of us, maybe most of us, know stories of people who were pastors and then found out they weren't saved. I've actually known men who were pastor of a church and then discovered that they weren't really born again. Now, I don't know what really happened there. I don't know how that works. Were they confused? I don't know. How do you have the guarantee that once you are saved, you're still called to preach? Maybe, maybe you get saved and then you're not called to preach anymore. Well, you need to step down from being pastor. I mean, I don't know how all that works, but we all know of instances of people who thought they were Christians and they weren't. So, we're delivered from the power of Satan, the Bible says. Number three, Scripture says that you are His possession. You're possessed, all right, by Him if you're saved. Now, what does the Bible say about this? Well, let's look at it. Ephesians 1.4. Speaking of the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, just the word guarantee. What good is a guarantee if they back out on it? Let's say, for instance, you go down tomorrow and you buy a brand new pickup. Name the brand, doesn't matter. And they give you a 36,000 mile full bumper to bumper guarantee. You drive it home and on your way home, it blows up. You may think that's crazy, it doesn't happen, but Pam and I one time bought a brand new Cougar. And on our way home, the transmission went out. (laughs) Driving home from the car lot, we had ordered it. My gosh. And it it broke down. I I, I got to a phone. I said, you're not going to believe this. They said, what is it? I said, the car that we just bought on your car lot, brand new. We ordered it. We've waited for weeks. It's here. It won't go. They had to put a brand new transmission in it. Now, what if they had said to me, well, you're going to have to pay for that, buddy. That transmission costs $3,000. Well, wait, there's a guarantee here. It's a bumper to bumper. Oh, that's just words. What good is a guarantee if it's not a guarantee, right? So when the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Now, what is that until the redemption of the purchased possession? That means when the Lord comes for us. When the Lord comes for us, the great in-gathering of all of God's people, the, 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 the theological term is glorification. It's when we get our glorified bodies to the praise of His glory. So notice, you're a purchased possession, and the guarantee is the Holy Spirit. So I guess if the Holy Spirit's not reliable, then the guarantee could be broken. 
Does that make any sense at all? No, it makes no sense whatsoever. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Notice it's not just your body that God's going to save. He's saving your spirit. The spirit salvation is called justification and sanctification. The body salvation is called glorification. Three phases, levels of salvation. Justification, sanctification, glorification. You'll get a glorified body. Your body has been purchased by Christ. Not just your spirit and your mind. All of you. That's why you have a resurrection. If you're not going to get a new body, there's no need for a resurrection. If Jesus was just going to be a ghost, well, then he didn't need to tell Thomas, touch the scars and all. I mean, he had a body. You're going to have a body. So notice, you're bought with a price. Well, that speaks of possession, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians 7, 23. Paul restates this truth. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. You're bought with a price. Now, let's, let's, let's synthesize what we're talking about here. Not being an authority on demonic possession. Uh, not wanting to argue with those who say, well, I believe a Christian can be possessed. Okay, fine. Uh, it's not a, we're not wanting to go to, you know, Fist City here over this. But, but let's think of what we've seen already straight from Scripture. We're delivered from the power of Satan. Delivered. Well, then how could we be then vulnerable to demonic possession if we're delivered from the power of Satan? Number two, you're God's possession. He's taken possession of you. Now, wouldn't that mean then that the demon would have to seize possession and then take you from God? Well, if you're going to be demonically possessed, that certainly seems to be. So, there's a progression here. Number four, every believer is baptized into Christ and has partaken of the Holy Spirit. Now, baptized into Christ is not talking about water baptism. We do water baptism to symbolize this, this is spirit baptism. Let's look at some verses. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Notice spirit is capital there. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. Every one of us was taken by the Holy Spirit and placed into the body of Christ just like we place someone into water when we baptize them. See the whole picture? You're placed into Christ. And you've also drank of the Spirit. Remember Jesus said, if you don't eat this bread, drink this, this cup, you cannot have part with me. The whole idea of drinking and eating, partaking is what he's talking about here. You have partaken of the third person of the Trinity. Now you're going to tell me then that your guarantee... Holy Spirit can't overpower a demon. Let's go to other verses. Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to His mercy, He saved us through how? Well, you're going forward at the invitation, bowing your knee and praying. No, that's not how you're saved. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of what? The church baptistry. No, church membership. No, of the Holy Spirit. What happens to the person who is saved is that something supernatural happens. And the Holy Spirit regenerates. It's what Jesus told Nicodemus was the second birth. Regenerate. All over again. But this time, new. Washed by the blood of the Lamb. Such were some of you. If any man is in Christ, he is a 
new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. See the difference? See, it's very, very distinct in Scripture. We blur the lines, but the Bible's really pretty, pretty clear of, about this. So, so every believer. All right, let's go to number five. This one is even, I think, more ironclad if it isn't already. The Bible says that believers are spiritually sealed. 2 Corinthians 1.22 who, has, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. There's that word guarantee again. And now the, the word sealed is used. Sealed. Well, what does it mean to seal something? Well, we all know what that means. So let's, um, let's illustrate. My grandmother used to can. Some of you probably still do. Used to can. It's kind of a lost art. Used to can. My wife still likes to make jelly. We have native sand plums that grow out on our property, and so we'll pick those sand plums when there's lots of sand plums, and she makes sand plum jelly. I love it. But I do know something about canning, and that is once you get what's in the jar in there, you better seal that up or that's going to go bad. So you seal it. If the seal breaks, stuff goes bad. Okay, now the Bible says that you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. So if you lose your salvation, what had to break? The seal. And the guarantee, once again, wasn't all that good because you couldn't get the car from the car lot to the house and now you've got to buy a brand new $3,000 transmission. You didn't even get it home. 2 Corinthians 5, 5. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. There we go again. The word guarantee. Ephesians 1.13, a verse that you're all very familiar with. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. There, there's that sealed again. Now the reason why I think this is so important is not only because I think it's a proof that Christians cannot be possessed by demons. But it's also proof that a Christian can know that they have eternal life. You see, if salvation is not a guarantee, if you're not sealed, then you can't ever know from day to day whether or not you're going to heaven. Free will Baptists are wonderful people. I have great friends and some family who are still free will Baptists, and I have no axe to grind with them and love them, and they're going to go to heaven. But I would preach in some of those free will Baptist churches as a young man, and I'd ask everybody when their, bows were, uh, their heads were bowed, those of you who know for sure if you died right now you'd go to heaven, would you lift your hand just so I could know if there were any unsaved people in the crowd? Invariably, there would be people that wouldn't lift their hands, and I thought, well, my gosh, they're Christian. I've known them for years. So they'd come by after the service and say, hey, I know you noticed that I didn't raise my hand. Well, I think it's rather presumptuous for a person to say that they can know if they died right now they'd go to heaven. And, and so I didn't lift my hand because I didn't want to say that. I can't be that presumptuous. Well, then why did John say, these things I have written that you may know that you have eternal life? If you can't know that you have eternal life, can you ever get beyond that point? I mean, the book of Hebrews says that we need to move on from baptisms and all that and get into deeper stuff. How in the world can you get into deeper stuff spiritually if you're not even sure you're saved? 
How in the world could I ever preach a sermon if I'm not sure that I'm even a Christian? Now, I know that some of you have your doubts, and I get that. You've listened to my wife already too much. But, I mean, think about it. How could anybody ever have any assurance of salvation? How could you ever help someone else come to Christ if you don't even know if you're saved and if you died right now, you'd go to heaven? Now, some would say, well, Dan, do you think that you're getting there because you're so good? No, I'm getting there because he's so good. I'm no good at all. But somewhere along the way, there has to be a level of assurance, some guarantee, some seal, or I promise you, if you can lose your salvation, you will. If God gave me salvation and then said, Dan, hang on to it. Do you think that I am so good that I could hold on to salvation for the rest of my Christian journey? There's a good example of this in the Old Testament in types. Remember when the Bible says that after Noah had finished the ark, he had sealed it. You remember? Within and without. It's actually the old Hebrew word for atonement. Beautiful picture there. But when Noah went to get on the ark, did God say, Now Noah, look, this is going to be a rocky road. That's why I told you to build those big pegs on the side so that you and your family could get a good tight hold because you're going to have to hang on. Because if you don't, you're going you're to get slung off this boat. This is going to be a rough deal. Actually, uh, engineers believe that the ark was designed so it could actually roll in the water, actually do a, a 360 and not sink. Probably it encountered that kind of rough water. Okay, but here's, here's the thing. Do you think no one in his family could have ever hung on tight enough to not be thrown off the ark? Not a chance. This is why the Bible says God shut him in. God sealed him in the ark. He couldn't get out. Now, I'm sure that Noah slipped and fell on board numerous times. But he never slipped and fell overboard. Do you catch the difference? Well, that's a significant thing because if I can't know that I'm saved, and I don't mean, you know, somebody comes up, cries a few tears, says, I'm a Christian, baptize me, I'm going to join this church, and they go out and live like a devil, and you say, well, you know, you know, they've got salvation. No, they don't. They didn't get anything. They got their names put on the roll and got some wet clothes from the baptistry. That's all they got. They need Christ. That's why these verses are so important. We are sealed. And then one other verse Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now again, I don't even have to elaborate on these. I mean, they're just so, so cut and clear. Now, it's not that we, we want to be arrogant. First of all, that's a sin, so we don't need to be arrogant. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So we, we don't that's, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about our confidence in Him to keep us. Paul tells the Philippian Christians, He who has begun a good work will complete it. If I couldn't know that, I'd be crazier than I already am. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm honest with you. If I couldn't know that God is going to complete what He has started in me, I'd resign. I would resign and I'd go nuts. Because I know myself too well. I can't do it. There's no way. And even in my best of efforts, I fall short and I slip and fall on board all the time. 
But thank God I've never slipped and fallen overboard. Because I'm sealed in the ship. And remember, Noah couldn't get out until God let him out. It was after the flood that God said, okay, now open the thing up. Remember what Jesus said, I'm, I'm the one who when I close it, no man can open it. And when I open it, no man can close it. He didn't say that just because he needed some extra filler in a particular book that was going to be written in the Bible. It's very important that we catch these things. Now, all of this, of course, then has something directly pertaining to demonic possession. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. How could a demon get inside and possess you if you're sealed with the Holy Spirit? All right, now this one, I gave you a little more room. And uh, we, we may not get through all of these verses. We may not get beyond this point today because I think it's important that we look at all of these verses. We don't have to break them all down, but we need to look at all of them. I could have just given you a list of references, but I really would want you to look at all these verses because the Bible is literally filled with verses that say you are filled with the third person of the Trinity. The Bible's filled with verses on filling. <laughs> so let's, let's just look at them real fast. Let's begin at Acts, Acts 5.32. These are in sequential order. And we are His witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Remember, the Holy Spirit is not a power. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He's not a movement. The Holy Spirit is a He. He is the third person of the triune God. The Holy Spirit is God. God the Holy Spirit. God the Son. God the Father. The Trinity is a massive concept that we all struggle with. That's fine. We may not ever be able to completely comprehend the concept of the Trinity, but we can apprehend the Trinity. And there's a big difference. Okay, so Acts 5.32, Romans 5.5. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 11. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, capital S, if indeed the Spirit, capital S of God, dwells in you. What Spirit of God? Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. If you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you, then you're not a Christian. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit, capital S, who dwells in you. Look how many times in that one passage of Scripture you've been told that if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, dwells in you. Lots of times. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world... But the Spirit who is from God. Notice the difference in the capitalizations of the word Spirit there. Spirit of the world, lowercase s. Spirit who is from God, uppercase s. Proper, because this is God. That we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. You've been given the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. So that verse covers two things. The possession that God has taken. But not only that, but the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You are the temple. That's why there is no temple today. That's why if you could find the Ark of the Covenant today, I'm convinced it would have no power in it. It'd be a beautiful artifact, and it's real. It'd be wonderful if we found it. But it wouldn't be like in the Old Testament, you couldn't touch it. See, God dwelt in that. He doesn't dwell in that anymore. 
He dwells in this temple. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God didn't want stones of, uh, uh, I mean, hearts of stone. He wanted hearts of flesh. A whole different subject, but every now and then I take off on a, a rabbit chase. Galatians chapter 3, verses 5 and 14. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit, capital S, through him. We've received the Spirit. Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son, capital S, not, not a Jesus movement. This is the Holy Spirit in your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. This is why you can know that God is your Father, because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Galatians 5, 5. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. You're not going to ever be righteous before God if, unless the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. This is called regeneration. Ephesians 2.22 In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the, capital S, Spirit. See? You're a dwelling place of the Spirit. Temple. He's working on you, the temple. Ephesians 3, 16 and 17, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Where is the Holy Spirit in relation to you? In the inner man. He's dwelling in you. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now we know that Jesus is actually seated at the right hand of the Father in a glorified body. Jesus personally cannot live in you. But he does through the third person of the Trinity who is just as equal as God, as God the Son, God the Father. So Christ does dwell in you. Ephesians six eighteen, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. How in the world do your prayers get from earth to heaven? By the Holy Spirit. We'll see this later. So the Holy Spirit energizes your prayer. He actually even prays prayers you don't know how to pray. 1 Thessalonians 4.8 Therefore he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. See, just over and over and over. 2 Timothy 1.14 That good thing which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. James 4, 5, or do you not think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? And, and the whole concept there is that the Holy Spirit with a jealous abandon wants to conform you to who Christ wants you to be. But notice the spirit who dwells in you. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now notice there's one of those we know verses. Those dear saints that would say to me, well, I don't, I'm not sure that you can ever know. Well, Scripture says you can know. This is not a hope so. This is a no so. Not because of any good thing I've done. But by His mercy and grace, He has saved me for the washing of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. See? So by this, we know He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. 1 John 4, 13, by this we know that we abide in Him. There's another one of these knows. This is why I said that John's letter that we call the book of 1 John is a faith test book. It's just filled with faith tests. 
We know that we abide in Him. How do we know that we abide in Christ? And He in us. Because He has given us of His Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you're going to give evidence of that. In fact, the Bible even says that His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we really are the children of God. Have you ever met a Christian you'd never met in your life, and in three minutes it's like you've known them your whole life? Now, I've also met some Christians that in three minutes I wish I'd never known them in my whole life. But, but you meet people, it's like that pastor down there in Baton Rouge. I'd never met Tony Spell. I'd read about him. I knew kind of what was going on there. The guy that had been arrested 33 times, done jail time because he wouldn't close his church. I'm telling you, we weren't there three minutes. It's like Tony and I have been buddies since we were kids. Now, why is that? He's just a super nice guy. Well, he is a nice guy. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in him and the Holy Spirit in me bears witness that we are the children of God. So notice this. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Well, I fooled myself. I got through those. Now let's go to number seven. We can be filled with the Spirit. Now, that almost seems to be a redundant statement. So what in the world am I talking about here? Well, it's more than the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Now the Holy Spirit can fill us. The illustration that I've always used, you've probably used before too, but I think it works well. If I invited you into my house and you uh, graciously accepted the invitation and you came into my house and right there in the little entry area, I said, stop right there. You can't get out of this spot. Could you ever be any more in my house than you are right then? No, you're in it. But there's areas that are off limits. And then if I said, well, that was a little too, uh, uh, that, that was too, too restrictive. You can, you can mill around here in the living room. But don't you dare go into the kitchen. Could you be any more in my house than you are right then? No, you're in it. But you're not allowed to fill it. And this, you know, the illustration goes on. You keep getting permission to go into every room till finally you can go anywhere in this house you want to go. You could fill it. I think that's what the Bible's talking about when it talks about the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It's talking not about us getting more of Him. It's talking about Him getting more of us. Do you catch that difference? It's not my getting more of Him. It's His getting more of me. It's called sanctification. It's a theological term. So let's look at what the Bible says. We begin at Acts chapter 6, verses 3 and 5. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Now, what is this about? Well, this is about picking the first deacons in the church in Jerusalem. One of those was a man named Stephen. Verse 5, And the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Now, Unfortunately, I blurred those two together. So the next reference is actually Acts 9.17. So I, I apologize for that. I, I didn't see how those had blurred together. So notice Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. It's not that he just had the Holy Spirit. He's a Christian. No, he is a Spirit-filled Christian. All right, let's go to Acts 9.17. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. Now this time Ananias is being sent to Saul, who's about to become Paul. 
And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. God could not launch Paul out until he had been infilled with the Holy Spirit. See the the idea? Uh, Here it is in another way. Paul writes this in Ephesians 5.18. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation or you're out of control excessively, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, why does he compare being drunk to being filled with the Holy Spirit? Because somebody's filled with the Holy Spirit, stumbles around like a lot of the Word of Faithers do, and they say, oh, he's drunk in the Spirit. That's not what that's talking about. What that's talking about is that when a person is under the control of alcohol, they're drunk. And they're not even in their right minds. They'll do and say things that they probably wouldn't normally do or say. Because they're under its control. So Paul says, rather than being under the control of something like alcohol or some other kind of sin, why not be filled with the Spirit? So that you're under His control. That's what he's saying there. So don't try to make that... Something more than it's not. So notice then, filled with the Spirit. Now, now, I realize this almost seems to be a different kind of lesson. But the, the reason why, and I haven't mentioned demons much. How could a person, where all of these things are true about that person, be possessed by a demon? You see, you see my point that I'm making here? Let's go to number eight. You go as far as the Holy Spirit is praying for you. You know, a lot of times I've had people say, you know, I was sick and the whole church was praying for me. The whole state was praying for me. I remember when Paul found out he had cancer, it didn't take very long for the word to get out. And he found out that there were people all over the country praying for him. He had old football buddies that he had lost track of. And they were sending him text messages and saying, man, we're praying for you. Had the whole country praying for him. Wow. Well, that's wonderful. But you didn't have anything on you. Because you've got the Holy Spirit praying for you. L- look at what the Bible says in uh, Romans 8.26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray as we ought. You ever, without words? Yeah. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. You can't utter them. He's praying for you in ways that you don't even know to pray for yourself. You've got the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, praying for you. And then you've got Christ at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. My gosh, that's a pretty good team. Jude verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, I know the word of faith people say, well, what that means is praying in tongues. I don't think that's what that means at all. I think that what that means is exactly what Paul wrote in Romans 8. It's praying in the Spirit, meaning that you, with the Holy Spirit in you, energized by the Holy Spirit, infilled by the Holy Spirit, you are praying directly to God. This is why you can come boldly to the throne of grace. How do you think our prayers are heard more readily than some unsaved person who says, my God, help me? That's a prayer. Well, the difference is they don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit who makes that connection. They're not praying in the Spirit. You are. Number nine and the last one. The Bible says that out of all of this, you add to it, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us. Now, all that means is, is He's setting you apart to make you more like God wants you to be. Look at what it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the what? 
spirit. It's not your elbow grease and your sweat. Now, there's a lot of elbow grease and sweat that ought to be expended on our part, but it's the Holy Spirit who's doing this. 1 Peter 1.22, our last verse. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Now, how are you able to do that? He says, in obeying the truth through the Spirit. This is all done through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now then, let me close it up by saying this. How could a person, where all of those verses are true about them, be possessed and owned by a demon? See, I don't think it's possible. Now next week what we'll do is we'll talk about, well then what could a demon do with and through a believer? Oh, unfortunately a lot. And we'll talk about that next week. But I personally, though, and if I'm wrong... I'll stand corrected. It's not anything that I'm willing to go to, like I said, Fist City over. But I just don't believe that you can be sealed and all that and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit and then demon comes along and possesses you. I thought I was God's possession. But we will talk about how a Christian can get crossways and be in real trouble spiritually. Okay, we'll start there next week. And I'll have the right number, so that'll be lesson seven, right? This is six. Lesson 7. God bless you for being here. You're dismissed. We'll have our second service here in just a little while.